This is the macabre and exciting tale of Hop Frog by Edgar Allan Poe, originally published in 1849. I never knew anyone so keenly alive to a joke as the king was. He seemed to live only for joking. To tell a good story of the joke kind and to tell it well was the surest road to his favor. Thus it happened that his seven ministers were all noted for their accomplishments as jokesters. They all took after the king too in being large, corpulent, oily men, as well as inimitable jokers. Whether people grow fat by joking or whether there is something in fat itself which predisposes to a joke, I have never been quite able to determine. But certain it is that a lean joker is a rada rada avis in terris. About the refinements, or as he called them, the ghost of wit, the king troubled himself very little. He had an especial admiration for breaths in a jest, and would often put up with a length for the sake of it. Over niceties worried him. He would have preferred Rabelais Gargantua to the Zadding of Voltaire, and upon the whole, practical jokes suited his taste far better than verbal ones. At the date of my narrative, professing jesters had not altogether gone out of fashion at court. Several of the great continental powers still retained their fools, who wore motley with caps and bells, and who were expected to always be ready with sharp witticisms at a moment's notice, in consideration of the crumbs that fell from the royal table. Our king, as a matter of course, retained his fool. The fact is, he required something in the way of fully, if only the counterbalance, the heavy wisdom of the seven wise men who were his ministers, not to mention himself. His fool, or professional jester, was not only a fool, however, his value was troubled in the eyes of the king by the fact of his being also a dwarf and a cripple. Dwarves were as common at court in those days as fools, and many monarchs would have found it difficult to get through their days. Days are rather longer at court than elsewhere, without both a jester to laugh with and a dwarf to laugh at. But as I have already observed, your jesters in 99 cases out of 100 are fat, round, and unwieldy, so that it was no small source of self-gratulation that our king found in Hopfrog, for this was the fool's name, he possessed a triplicate treasure in one person. I believe the name Hopfrog was not that given to the dwarf by his sponsors at baptism, but it was conferred upon him by general consent of the several ministers on account of his inability to walk as other men do. In fact, Hopfrog could only get along by a sort of interjectual gait, something between a leap and a wriggle. A moment that afforded illimitable amusement and, of course, consolation to the king, for, notwithstanding the protuberance of his stomach and constitutional swelling of the head, the king by his whole court was accounted a capital figure. But although Hopfrog, through the distortion of his legs, could move only with great pain and difficulty along the road or the floor, the prodigious muscular power which nature seemed to have bestowed upon his arms by way of compensation for deficiency in the lower limbs enabled him to perform many feats of wonderful dexterity, where trees or ropes were in question or anything else to climb. At such exercises he certainly much more resembled a squirrel or a small monkey than a frog. I am not able to say with precision for what country Hopfrog originally came. It was from some barbarous region, however, that no person ever heard of. 
a vast distance from the court of our king. Hopfrog and a young girl, very little less dwarfish than himself, although of exquisite proportions and a marvelous dancer, have been forcibly carried off from their respective homes and adjoining provinces and sent as presents to the king by one of his ever-victorious generals. Under these circumstances, it is not to be wondered at that a close intimacy arose between the two little captives. Indeed, they soon became sworn friends. Hopfrog, who, although he made a great deal of sport, was by no means popular. Had it not been his power to render Tripta many services, but she, on account of her grace and exquisite beauty, even though she was a dwarf, was universally admired and petted, so she possessed much influence, and never failed to use it whenever she could for the benefit of Hopfrog. On some grand state occasion, I forget what, the king determined to have a masquerade, and whenever a masquerade or anything of that kind occurred at our court, then the talents both of Hopfrog and Trippetta were sure to be called into play. Hopfrog, in especial, was so inventive in the way of getting up pageants, suggesting novel characters, and arranging costumes for masked balls that nothing could be done, it seems, without his assistance. The night appointed for the fete had arrived. A gorgeous hall had been fitted up under Trapetta's eye with every kind of device which one could possibly give Eklit a two in a masquerade. The whole court was in fever of expectation. As for costumes and characters, it might well be supposed that everybody had come to the decision on such points. Many had made up their minds as to what roles they should assume a week or even a month in advance. And in fact, there was not a particle of indecision anywhere. Except in the case of the king and his seven ministers. Why they hesitated, I could never tell. Unless they did it by way of a joke, more probably they found it difficult, on account of being so fat, to make up their minds. At all events, time flew, and as a last resort, they sent for Trippetta and Hopfrog. When the two little friends obeyed the summons of the king, they found him sitting at his wine with seven members of his cabinet council. But the monarch appeared to be very ill-humored. He knew that Hopfrog was not fond of wine, for excited the poor cripple almost to madness, and madness no comfortable feeling. But the king loved his practical jokes and took pleasure in forcing Hopfrog to drink, and as the king called it, be merry. Come here, Hopfrog, he said as the jester and his friend entered the room. Swallow this bumper to your health of your absent friends. Here, here, and then let us have the benefit of your invention. We want characters. Characters, man, something novel. Out of the way. We are all wearied with this everlasting sameness. Now come, drink. The wine will brighten your wits. Hopfrog sighed and endeavored, as usual, to get up a jest and reply to these advances from the king. But the effort was too much. It happened to be the poor dwarf's birthday, and the command to drink to his absent friends forced the tears to his eyes. Many large bitter drops fell into the goblet as he took it humbly from the hand of the tyrant. <laughs> roared the king as the dwarf reluctantly drained the beaker. See what a glass of good wine can do you! Why, your eyes are shining already! Poor fellow. His eyes gleamed rather than shone, for the effect of wine on his excitable brain was not more powerful than instantaneous. He placed the goblet nervously on the table and looked upon the company with a half-insane stare. They all seemed highly amused at the success of this king's joke. And now to business, said the prime minister, who was also a very fat man. Yes, said the king. Come, lend us your assistance. Characters, my fine fellow, 
We stand in need of characters, all of us. <laughs> and this was seriously meant for a joke. His laugh was chorused by the seven. Hopfrog also laughed, although feebly and somewhat vacantly. Uh, come, come, said the king impatiently. Have you nothing to suggest? I am endeavoring to think of something novel, replied the dwarf, abstractedly, for he was quite bewildered by the wine. Ah, endeavoring, cried the tyrant. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I perceive you are sulky. You must want more of this wine. <laughs> Here, drink this. And he poured out another goblet full and offered it to the cripple, who merely gazed upon it, gasping for breath. A drink, I say, or by the fiends, shouted the monster of a king. The dwarf hesitated. The king grew purple with rage. The courtiers smirked. Trippetta, pale as a corpse, advanced to the monarch's seat, and falling on her knees before him, implored him to spare her friend. The tyrant regarded her for some moments in evident wonder as to her audacity. It seemed quite at a loss what to do or say, how most becomingly to express his indignation. At last, without uttering a syllable, he pushed her violently away from him and threw the contents of the brimming goblet directly into her face. The poor girl she got up as best as she could, and not daring to even sigh, resumed her position at the foot of the table. There was a dead silence for about half a minute, during which the falling of a leaf or of a feather might have been heard. It was interrupted by a low, but harsh and protracted grating sound, which seemed to come at once from every corner of the room. What? What, what are you making that noise for? demanded the king, turning now furious at the dwarf. The latter seemed to have recovered in great measure from his intoxication, and looking fixedly but quietly into the tyrant's face, merely ejaculated, I, I, well, how could it have been me, king? The sound apparent to come from without, observed one of the courtiers. I fancy it was the parrot at the window, wetting his bill upon the cage wires. True, replied the monarch, as if much relieved by the suggestion. But, on the honor of the knight, I could have sworn that it was the gritting of this vagabond's teeth. Hereupon the dwarf laughed. The king was too confirmed a joker to object to anyone else's laughing, and displayed a large set of powerful and repulsive teeth. Moreover, he avowed his perfect willingness to swallow as much wine as desired. The monarch was pacified, and having drained another bumper with no perceptible ill effect, Hopfrog entered at once, and with spirit, into the plans for the masquerade. "'I cannot tell what was the association of the idea,' observed he very tranquilly, and as if he had never tasted wine in his life. "'But just after your majesty had struck the girl and thrown the wine in her face, just after your majesty had done this, and, and while the parrot was making that odd noise outside the window, there came into mind a capital, capital diversion, one of my own country frolics, often enacted among us at our masquerades, but here it will be new altogether. Unfortunately, however, it requires a company of eight persons and... Uh, here we are, cried the king, laughing at his acute discovery of coincidence. Eight to a fraction, I and my seven ministers. <laughs> Come now, what? what is the diversion? Well, we call it, replied the cripple, the eight chained orangutans. And uh, it really is excellent sport, if well enacted. <laughs> we shall enact it, remarked the king, drawing himself up and lowering his eyelids. Well, the beauty of the game 
continued Hop Frog, lies in the fright it occasions among the women. <laughs> Capital! roared in chorus the monarch in his ministry. I will equip you as orangutans, proceeded the dwarf. Leave all that to me. The resemblance shall be so striking that the company of masqueraders will take you for real beasts. And of course, they will be much more terrified as astonished. Oh, 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 Hopfrog, ha, this is this is exquisite! exclaimed the king. Hopfrog, I will, I will make a man out of you. The chains are for the purpose of increasing the confusion by their jangling. You are supposed to have escaped in mass from your keepers, your Majesty. You cannot conceive the effect produced at a masquerade by eight chained orangutans. Imagine to who be real ones by most of the company and rushing in with with savage cries among the crowd of delicately and, and, and gorgeously habited men and women the, the contrast is is inimitable <laughs> it must be said the king and the council arose hurriedly as it was growing late to put in execution of this scheme from hop frog his mode of equipping the party as orangutans was very simple, but effectively enough for his purposes. The animals in question had, at the epoch of my story, very rarely been seen in any part of the civilized world, and as imitations made by the dwarf were sufficiently beast-like and more sufficiently hideous, their truthfulness to the nature was thus thought to be secured. The king and his ministers were first encased in tight-fitting stockinette shirts and drawers. They were then saturated with tar. At this stage of the process, some of the party suggested feathers, but the suggestion was once overruled by the dwarf, who was soon convinced to the eight by ocular demonstration that the hair of such a brute as the orangutan was much more efficiently represented with flax. A thick coating of the latter was accordingly plastered upon the coating of tar. A long chain was now procured. First, it was passed around the waist of the king and tied, and then about the rest of the party and also tied, and then about all successively in the same manner. When this chaining arrangement was complete, the party stood as far apart from each other as possible and formed a circle. And to make things appear natural, Hopfrog passed the residue of the chain in two diameters at right angles across the circle after the fashion adopted. At the present day, by those who captured chimpanzees or other large apes in Borneo. The grand saloon in which the masquerade was to take place was a circular room, very lofty and receiving the light of the sun, only through a single window at top. At night, the season for which the apartment was especially designed, it was illuminated principally by a large chandelier, depending by a chain from the center of the skylight and lowered or elevated by means of a counterbalance as usual, but in order not to look unsightly, this ladder passed outside the cupola and over the roof. The arrangements of the room had been left to Tripita's superintendence, but in some particulars it seemed she had been guided by the calmer judgment of her friend the dwarf. At his suggestion it was that, on this occasion, the chandelier was to be removed, its waxen drippings, which in weather so warm it was quite impossible to prevent, would have been seriously detrimental to the rich dresses of the guests, who, on account of the crowded state of the saloon, could not at all be expected to keep from out of its center, that is to say, from under the chandelier. 
Additional sconces were set in various parts of the hall, out of the war room, and a flambeau emitting sweet order was placed in the right hand of each of the caryatids that stood against the wall, some fifty or sixty altogether. The eight orangutans, taking Hopfog's advice, waited patiently until midnight when the room was thoroughly filled with the masqueraders. Before making their appearance, no sooner had the clock ceased striking when they rushed, or rather, <laughs> rolled in altogether, for the impediments of their chains caused most of the party to fall and all to stumble as they entered. The excitement among the masqueraders was prodigious and filled the heart of the king with glee. As had been anticipated, there were not a few of the guests who supposed the ferocious-looking creatures were actually some beasts of some kind of reality if not precisely orangutans. Many of the women swooned with affright, and had not the king taken the precaution to exclude all weapons from the saloon, his party might soon have been expiated, their frolic in their blood. As it was, a general rush was made for the door, but the king had ordered them to be locked immediately upon his entrance, and at the dwarf's suggestions, the keys had been deposited with him. While the tumult was at his height, and each masquerader attentive only to his own safety, for in fact there was the much real danger from the pressure of the excited crowd, the chain by which the chandelier ordinarily hung, and had been drawn up into its removal, might have been seen very gradually to descend, until its hooked extremity came within three feet of the floor. Soon after this, the king and his seven friends, having reeled about the hall in all directions, found themselves at length in its center and, of course, in immediate contact with the chain. While they were thus situated, the dwarf, who had followed noiselessly at their heels, inciting them to keep up the commotion, took hold of their own chain, and at the intersection of the two portions, which crossed the circle diametrically and at right angles, here, with the rapidity of thought, he inserted the hook from which the chandelier had been and would normally depend, and in an instant, by some, some unseen agency, the chandelier chain was drawn so far upward as to take the hook out of reach, and as an inevitable consequence, to drag the orangutans together in close connection and face to face. The masqueraders by this time had recovered in some measure from their alarm and beginning to regard the whole matter as well-contrived pleasantry, set up a loud shout of laughter at the predicament of the apes. Leave them to me, screamed Hopfrog, his shrill voice making itself easily heard through all of the din. <laughs> Leave them to me. I fancy I know them. If I can only get a good look at them, I can soon tell who they are. Here, scrambling over the heads of the crowd, he managed to get to the wall, when, seizing a flambeau from one of the caratides, he returned as he went to the center of the room, leaping with the agility of a monkey upon the king's head, and thence clambered a few feet up the chain, holding down a torch, to examine the group of orangutans and still screaming, I shall soon find out who they are! And now, while the whole assembly, the apes included, were convulsed with laughter, the jesters suddenly uttered a shrill whistle. When the chain flew violently up about thirty feet, dragging with it the dismayed and struggling orangutans, and leaving them suspended in midair between the skylight and the floor. Hopfrog, clinging to the chain as it rose, still maintained his relative position in respect to the eight maskers, and still, as though nothing were the matter, continued to thrust his torch down towards them, as though endeavoring to discover who they were. 
So thoroughly astonished was the whole company at this ascent that a dead silence of about a minute's duration ensued. It was broken by such a low, harsh grating sound as had before attracted the attention of the king and his counselors, when the former threw the wine in the face of Trippetta. But, on this present occasion, there could be no question as to whence the sound ensued. It came from the fang-like teeth of the dwarf who ground them, and gnashed them as he foamed at the mouth and glared, with an expression of maniacal rage, into the upturned countenances of the king and his seven companions. <laughs> said at length the infuriated jester. <laughs> I, I begin to see who these people are now. Here, pretending to scrutinize the king more closely, he held the flame to the flaxen coat which enveloped him, and which instantly burst into a sheet of vivid fire. In less than half a minute, the whole eight orangutans were blazing fiercely amid the shrieks of the multitude who gazed upon them from below, horror-stricken, and without the power to render in any slightest assistance. At length, the flames suddenly increased in virulence, forced the jester to climb higher up the chain to be out of their reach, and as he made this movement, the crowd again sank for a brief instance into silence. The dwarf seized his opportunity once more to speak. I now see distinctly, he says, <laughs> what manner of people these maskers are. Why, they are the great king and his seven privy counselors. A king who does not scruple to strike a defenseless girl and his seven counselors who abetted him in this outrage as for myself. I am simply <laughs> Hop Frog the Jester. And this is my last jest. Owing to the high combustibility of both flax and the tar to which it adhered, the dwarf had scarcely made an end of his brief speech before the work of vengeance was complete. The eight corpses now swung in their chains, a fetid, blackened, and hideous, and indistinguishable mass. The cripple hurled his torch at them, clambered leisurely to the ceiling, and disappeared, and disappeared through the sky light. This was Hopfrog by Edgar Allan Poe. I hope you guys enjoyed this little read. I'm planning on doing a few more in between episodes or to perhaps cover uh, some, some spaces for episodes while I do some more research and give myself some time to really bring forward uh, some more in-depth stuff. If you guys have any suggestions for short reads of public domain, let me know and I'll be more than happy to check it out. But until then, I'll see you guys next time.